So the key to winning your war, I hope you've picked up on this by now, the key to winning your battle transpires between the temples on your head, right, in your mind. This is where the battlefield is. This is where the war is going to be won or lost. And so we're talking about your thought processes, how you think, how you perceive truth, how you find truth, how you uh, have developed this grid system in your mind through which everything filters that comes in and through your mind and, and determines how you perceive things. And as we said, if you want to change your life, you must first begin by changing your thoughts, right? You have to change your thought processes if you're going to actually change your life. Your, th- your thoughts affect your emotions, which affects what you do, right? So your will is the part of you that makes decisions on the basis of what the mind and the emotions are, are telling it. And the reason why this is so, so important, as we've said many, many times, is because your life is always moving in the direction of your most dominant thinking, right? So whatever dominates your mind is the direction that your life is ultimately going to go in. And so having said that, here's what... Uh, the Apostle Paul um, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, he reminds us that for though we live in this world, right, we live flesh and blood bodies, we do not wage war as the, as the world does. What does the world do when it's waging war, right? We pick up physical weapons, right? We've got tanks, we've got, you know, uh, machine guns, we've got bombs, we've got all kinds of things of weaponry. He says, no, this is not what we fight with. On the contrary, they have, divine, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now, having that context of you know, this war we're in, we're demolishing what? Strongholds. Where do strongholds take place? In your mind, right? So this is where it is. This is where the battle is. Now go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at the last piece of, the, of our weaponry, which is not physical weaponry, but they are spiritual in nature and in power. Uh, so we have already looked at uh, five of those six pieces of the armor because it reminds us to be strong in the Lord, Chapter 6, verse 10, and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God, take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of, uh, of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, right? So this is the war that's going on to heaven that's come to earth, kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God, warring with one another, come to earth, you and I are in the middle of it, therefore put on the full armor of God that when the evil day comes... And you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, now take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation, and as we're going to talk about today, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and next week, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So let me talk about, um, first of all, right out of the gate, what is a stronghold? Let me give you a definition, a working definition I'm going to use for today. There are many ways you could define this, but I want to give you this definition because we're going to come back to it time and time again as we talk about the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is so, so important because it is your offensive weapon, right? Your only offensive weapon that you have to use against your enemy. So here's how I define a stronghold. It is the mindset, because remember the battle's in your mind, the mindset that accepts a situation as unchangeable, even though the situation is contrary to the will of God. So in other words, this is a mental fortress that Satan has set up in your mind that you think it's unchangeable. This is the way I am. This is the way I'm always going to be. It's never going to change. I've tried it in the past. You know, I've tried to change this behavior. I tried to change this habit. I tried to change this attitude. I tried to change so many different things, but it just seems like I never make any headway. And so that's what Satan wants you to believe, that you are unchangeable. And so this is a mental fortress from which he operates. 
And the way he operates is he just keeps pounding your head, your, your thought life with his, with his thoughts, right? And his thoughts are always what? Lie-based. Jesus says he's a liar. He's the father of all lies. So it's always going to be lie-based. It's never going to be truth-based. So whenever God interjects truth, he's always going to counteract whatever God does, and he's going to counteract with a lie. So obviously, throughout the course of our lifetimes, we... Uh, we have developed, as I said, this, this grid in our thought processes that is that mental stronghold. Now, some strongholds are very, very obvious. Uh, you could call a stronghold a coping mechanism, right? And so oftentimes strongholds develop into coping mechanisms with which we deal with life. For example, uh, an obvious stronghold would be a drug addiction, Right, so now not only am I mentally um, charged up in this area of, of drug addiction, but now my body also is engaged because now drugs have had not only effect upon me mentally and emotionally, but also bodily. And so therefore, that's why uh, you know, d- dismantling this thought process that it would enable me to set to be set free from my drug addiction, um, there's that bodily, you know, desire and yearning and hunger after something. Or it might be uh, a stronghold to relationships. You know, maybe other people have captured you emotionally and have held you prisoner. This could have happened with um, friends or an old boyfriend, girlfriend, an ex-spouse. I mean, all kinds of relationships where we we have woundedness, and that woundedness has tied us and attached us to that individual, whether that relationship is alive now or not. See, there's some people who are still tied emotionally to their parents, even though their parents were, have died a long time ago, but there was, there was deep woundedness between themselves and their parents that are still controlling their life in the here and now, even though their parents may have been gone for the last 15, 20 years. And so what is Satan trying to to convince us this is unchangeable, can't change it, they're dead, they're gone, can't make it right now, therefore you're just going to have to live this way. That is, that is a lie of the enemy. And so it might be, for others, it's abuse of some sort. And so you just feel like you cannot change, you cannot move forward in your life because of the scars that have been left behind. Or maybe your stronghold is not so obvious. This is a stronghold that's in your thought processes that other people cannot see. Right? They don't see the outcome of this. For example, it might be an addiction to pornography, or it might be uh, an attitude of hatred, anger, bitterness, jealousy, envy, all of those negative fleshly desires that we have within us that control us emotionally. And whenever you harbor angers with like anger, bitterness, and forgiveness, these are huge open doors or platforms for which you're inviting the enemy to come in and to operate in your life, which is why God talks about those issues so, so much on how to dismantle those thought processes that have led you to that imprisonment in your life. And so what is unfortunate is that you believe that's the way it has to be. That's why I give you this definition. It's this mindset that accepts this situation, this attitude, this hurt, this scar as something that is unchangeable. Listen, if you've been wounded in life, that's kind of like an open wound. Satan wants to keep that wound open and fresh. But if you allow that wound to heal, that wound becomes a scar. A scar can become a story. So I've, I've wounded this woundedness in my life, and as long as I continue to harbor hurt, anger, bitterness, and unforgiveness, thinking that I could not ever change this situation, then it just remained an open wound. But when I took the steps necessary to dismantle that thought process and put on God's thoughts and then exercise forgiveness and that wound healed, it left a scar, but that scar has become a story. That story became a ministry. Do you kind of get the process? God wants to take your woundedness, turn it into a scar that becomes your story, that becomes your platform of the gospel of Jesus. For example, Terry brought me in a young man this morning while I was in my office and uh, said, hey, I just met this guy on the parking lot. His car broke down. I come in here and, and a teenager, and we sat and talked for over an hour. 
you know, about woundedness and about deep woundedness and how, how that affects our lives and, and the strongholds. And so, um, yeah, God, God uses that platform. And so I could relate to him so well because of some of my own woundedness and my own scarring that became my story that immediately connected with this young man who's probably about, I don't know, 17, 18 years, years old. He's a, he's a high school student. So you're not doomed to live the rest of your life controlled by these mental, emotional, and bodily strongholds. And sometimes we try to blame others for our strongholds, but people cannot cause you to surrender to Satan, right? Uh, Sometimes we blame strongholds on our circumstances. For example, a man who's abusive to his wife says, well, but you don't understand. She just sets off my temper. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is your temper. Why do you have that temper and how you're controlling that temper? Stop using her and your circumstances as, a, as an excuse to do what it is that you are doing because you have a mental stronghold that you're succumbing to. So strongholds are ultimately spiritual problems, spiritual issues. And if I'm going to battle spiritual issues, I do it with spiritual weapons. I do not do, not do that with physical weapons. Amen? So let me give you the three-step process by which you dismantle mental strongholds in your life. Number one is this. You, you need to remember, always remember, because Satan's going to attack this, remember your position in Christ, who you have become in Jesus. Your position in Christ gives you a new level of authority. We, we have powerful Christians living powerless lives because we keep looking to Satan for permission to live as powerful Christians. Listen, as a child of God, you've been given a delegated authority by Jesus himself, which means Satan no longer has any, any power or authority over you unless you give it to him. Get that in your head. Because of your position in Christ. Now, prior to Jesus, he had all authority over you. He had all power over you. Just read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You are a puppet on the end of his strings. But now that you are in Christ, you've been given a new position, a new creation in Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 1, how you've been, you, you have now been positioned with Jesus in the heavenly places already. Jesus, all the power and authority has been given to him, and he has delegated it to you so that you no longer have to submit yourself to whatever it is that Satan's seeking to do in your life or the mental fortresses that he has built up in your thought processes. So here's what Colossians 2.15 says, that Jesus, he came and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and the powers, that's the, you know, the, the spiritual demonic realm of things, and he disarmed them and made a public display over them, and he triumphed over them. When Jesus rose from the dead, Satan was disarmed. He was stripped of his weapons. He lost his ammunition. He was rendered powerless. In fact, so much so that when Jesus was placed in the grave, he went down to Sheol and to the side of paradise where the the saints of God were. And when he came up out of that grave, guess who he brought with him? He brought those saints of God in paradise and he rendered to, to Satan in his own face, listen, you have no power over death. I have all power, I have all authority, and I'm going to raise these people up out of the grave. Therefore, you and I, that's why we have no fear of death. To live for Christ is to gain, and to die is simply gain. You put this body in the grave, one day Jesus is going to resurrect it. You put this body in the grave, my spirit and soul has already gone into heaven with Jesus. Therefore, I have no fear of death, and if I've lost my fear of death, you have no control over me. So, Jesus... This, get this, it says that when Jesus ascended back into heaven, that he was enthroned on the right hand of the Father. Now, I know you don't get this in English translation, but in the Greek translation, you have already, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, you have already been seated in the heavenlies with Christ as far as God's concerned. That's where he sees you. Therefore, that delegated authority is now yours. which means you are, again, not fighting for victory. You are actually fighting from victory when you learn how to pick up the sword of the Spirit and use it like a skilled surgeon. Your enemy has no 
authority or power or dominion over you anymore. You do not have to live as though this is unchangeable because that, again, is simply a lie of the enemy. And so the devil's strategy is to keep you from living your life in the power of Christ, claiming the authority that is yours because you are under the blood of Jesus. It's kind of like when you, uh, you're driving your car. Let's say you go downtown Columbus, and oftentimes there are streets that are blocked off. There are police officers standing out there in the middle, and they're directing traffic, right? So let's say you're driving, and the, and the police officer goes like this. Now, what does that typically mean? Stop. Well, what if you decide to blow right on through that stop sign? Well, now, you know this police officer by his uniform, right? He or she, they have a badge. They have the authority of the police department behind them. So you can choose to blow through their stop if you want. But if you choose to do that, more than likely, there will be a police car following behind you, giving you the blue light special, writing you a ticket because you have just violated the authority that has been given to that police officer. Do you understand that Jesus clothed you in his righteousness? He clo- he's, he's, he's poured the blood of Jesus over you. He's forgiven you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You are righteous in Christ. You're in new position, new authority, which means that... Satan has no right over you. You have the authority to say stop and stop him dead in his tracks. The question is, how do we do that? Well, you learn from Jesus. He's the model for us. So when you go to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, you want to note some of the things that Jesus did not do. When he was tempted by the devil, what's the first thing the devil uh, challenged him on? If you are the Son of God, his identity. Remember at his baptism, what did the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God gave him that identity. The Holy Spirit came upon, descended like a dove, led him into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. He's in this position of weakness, but he is, you know, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Satan comes to tempt him, to seek to disqualify him, to be the Savior of the world. And the first thing he says, I mean, Jesus fasting for 40 days, he's physically hungry. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. So he challenges his identity. But Jesus didn't argue with him. He doesn't even converse with him. He doesn't like dance around the ring like Muhammad Ali used to do the rope-a-dope kind of thing with his opponents. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus responds to all three temptations by simply saying, it is written. What Jesus did, in essence, was to pick up the sword of the Spirit in response to what Satan was tempting him with. We're going to learn how to do that together, all right? So this is so, so important because you and I, oftentimes, Satan has us stop, you know, we're, we're just kind of praying, Lord, you know, give me victory, give me victory over the devil, you know, give me victory. And uh, God's saying in response, you already have victory, just put on the uniform, what uniform, the armor of God, when you wear that armor, and when you pick up that shield of the sword of the Spirit, and you learn how to skillfully use it like a skilled surgeon, I'm telling you, you will have victory. So you... You begin by remembering your position in Christ, and you then rely on God's provisions. What is God's provision? What is the armor of God? These are the provisions. These are the spiritual weapons that God has given to us, and every single weapon relates back to the mind, relates back to our thought processes. And so the armor of God ties back the first three, the piece of the armor, as we said, we're to wear these at all times, the belt of truth, and... um, the breastplate of righteousness, and also the, um, uh, the gospel are feet fitted from the gospel of peace. And then the other three weapons, he says you're going to take those up as needed, kind of like a baseball player. They wear a baseball uniform out on the field, but you pick up a glove, you pick up a ball, you pick up a bat based on what it is you're doing, what is needed at that moment in time. So the belt of truth, remember, is that. It is just, it is truth. It is God's truth. Where do we find God's truth? We find God's truth in God's word. The problem is, I told my wife this morning, I said, I come up with, I I ran across a quote by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor mm, centuries ago. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said back in his day and time. The most unread book by God's people is the word of God. 
And if that is true, then we, we, where are we gathering our truth? How are we developing an arsenal of truth if we're not in the word of truth? Because that belt of truth is what holds everything else together when it comes to the armor. And so truth uh, is, is uh, what we need because, again, the devil is a liar. God speaks. Satan's going to counteract. The truth is because wherever you perceive truth, you know, whatever your truth is, that formulates your worldview. How you see things, how you relate to things, how you relate to God, how you relate to other people, how you relate to monetary things, how you make decisions in life everything that you come across. So when you are faced and you are challenged, for example, things that are challenging our society in our day and time, how are we to respond to that as a, as a follower of Jesus? Well, are we going to respond out of my personal opinion? Are we going to respond out of what a professor told me? Or are we going to respond out of what God's word says to us? I can assure you that if you respond out of the truth of God's word, especially in our day and time, it's not going to be a real popular response. But it is truth, and it is truth that sets us free, and it is truth that helps determine how we make the best decisions in life. And so we are to put on truth, walk in truth, because we, we, we have shifted in our society. You know, years ago when I was growing up, even in school, it was about character development. You know, in school, you learned about saying, yes, ma'am, no, sir. You, know, very, you learned politeness. You learned character development. We no longer are, are so worried about character development on our day and time. We are worried more about attacking social issues. But I'm going to tell you something. You, you, you can attack social issues all you want, but until the character of the individual who is involved in those issues changes, nothing's going to change. Because in, at the core of our existence, according to God's truth, is selfishness, pride, not humility, pride, selfishness, envy. I want what I want and the way I want it and when I want it, and you better give it to me. So if you look at God's kingdom and how he structured it, he has four levels of government, self-government. That's the number one. You learn how to self-govern. Your... And so the way we learn self-government is through the power of the Holy Spirit, the the fruit of the Spirit being lived in and through us, and then you move to family government, and then you move to church government, and then to civil government. That's the way God's designed his kingdom, but that is not the way that Satan has designed his kingdom. He's flipped that upside down, and we wonder why we have problems. So breastplate of righteousness deals with our emotions, uh, and we talked about this. We're positionally and practically uh, righteous in Christ. The feed fitted with the gospel protects our will, and so we pick up the shield of faith. We access all that God has for us, and we believe that God says he will do what he says he will do. And the way that we prove that is through our feet, right, through our obedience. If I really believe it, then I'm going to live it out. I'm going to walk it out in my day day in and out, day out life. The helmet of salvation we talked about a couple of weeks ago is that we have been saved or being saved or going to be saved in the future, which Paul is dealing with the here and now. How do we have victory? We do so by relying on God, God's provision, the armor of God. And so that brings us to this. He says to resist the devil. James 4, 7 says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee from you. All right, so how do you resist the devil? Get this, it's real simple. You resist the devil by learning how, and I've said this three times now, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and use it like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon. Hear me, hear me very well. It's not enough just to come and listen to messages. You can go to Bible studies and listen to messages all of your life, but if you don't learn how to take what you're hearing and what you're learning and use it as a scalpel against your enemy, you will remain defeated. Now, people get, tell me all, all kinds of reasons and excuses why they cannot do that and why that can't happen. But um, uh, trust me, it, that, it goes right back to what's the stronghold. Well, the situation's just unchangeable. My life's just unchangeable. It can't be any different. It's the way it's been all of my life. It's the way it's going to be the rest of my life. There's nothing I can do about it. That is a lie. Thank you very much. So he says, pick up the sword, the sword. What is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? The word sword here 
is the Greek word makara, which um, a Roman soldier had two swords that were very near and dear to him, right? They had the broad sword that was long. You know, they had the shield. They run into battle. You know, they had the big shield. They run into battle. They had the sword. They dropped the big shield because it's like carrying a door uh, as they pushed forward as far as they could against their enemy. And then, you know, they'd wield the sword and, you know, it's broad strokes, but that's not the word that, that Paul's using here. He's using the Greek word that means uh, the other short sword that a soldier carried was anywhere from 6 to 18 inches long. It was concealed. This is my um, hunting knife. So it would be something about this size, maybe a little longer, that was concealed. And so once the big shield was dropped and he's had the smaller shield and he was in hand, this was used for hand-to-hand combat. You against someone else, face to face, and you as a soldier wanted to learn how to skillfully use this because it would determine whether or not you lived to see another day. Because if you did not have the ability to do this skillfully, you would not live to see another day. And this is the reason why so many of God's people are falling in defeat day in and day out because we've never learned how to skillfully use God's word against our enemy in spiritual warfare and in the transformation of our minds that leads to the transformation of our, of our lives. And so Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. In other words, the Bible is so lethal against our enemy that he cannot stand up against it in hand-to-hand combat if you learn to use it. Truth, truth will always topple a lie. lie. Lies cannot stand against the truth. And so that's why you want to be skilled and ready, equipped with the Word of God. He says, so it's the sword of the Spirit. It's not your sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. You're not bringing your own sword. You're bringing His sword. Well, what is his sword? His sword is the word of God, right? Because it's the spirit who uses the sword in the heavenly places to deliver a death blow against your enemy because you cannot deliver that death blow yourself. Here's what happens to a lot of God's people is we're not really skillfully equipped to use the word of God, and so we enter into battle kind of like what Moses did when Moses decided, you know what? Uh, My people are in bondage in Egypt, and uh, they need a deliverer, and guess who's going to deliver them? I'm going to deliver them. And so he goes into that deliverance mode, and uh, as a result, he kills an Egyptian, and as a result of that, he has to flee for his life and sit on the backside of a desert for 40 years while he's watching his father-in-law's sheep for God to prepare him to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and march back into Egypt and then yield that sword in a skillful way against his enemy that results in God letting his people go. Or you could take Peter. When Peter's in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and Jesus comes out and he is arrested, and what did Peter do? I'm going to save Jesus. How many times did Jesus tell Peter and all of his apostles, listen, I must go to Jerusalem. I will be handed over to the officials. I will die a brutal death, but I will come out of the grave on the third day. They heard that over and over and over again, and yet Peter did what? He pulled out his little sword and he slashed off the ear of one of the assistants to a Roman soldier thinking that would do it. Man, I'll just slice and dice my way into you know, helping Jesus escape his fate that is worse than death. How did that work out for him? Not very well. Denying Christ three times, backing out of ministry, thinking he was done, all washed up, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And so this is what we do oftentimes is that we, we have to be aware of the fact that our authority for victory in the spiritual realm is rooted and grounded in the Spirit of God as we learn how to take the written Word of God and skillfully use it against our enemy. This is why, the reason why we often lose, lose battles is, okay, so what would be, for example, me coming against the enemy with this like in my back pocket. I'm not going to put it back here because I will slice and dice myself. You don't want to see that. Well, you go into any Barnes and Nobles. What are their, what are their rows and rows and rows of? Self-help books. 
How many people have really been helped by self-help books? Now, they might tweak a few things in their life. They might learn how to manage their sin issues. Uh, they might, you know, experience a little bit of change, but they're not really experiencing transformation. Transformation comes through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God and brings transformation in our lives. And so I just don't want to run into, listen, only God has the power to tear down and to rebuild your thought processes. I'm not going to find what I need through a self-help book. But oftentimes God's people, because we are so ignorant of God's Word and His truth and have no knowledge about how to yield this sword of the Spirit, we seek out those things or we seek out popular opinion or we pull all of our friends on Facebook and we try to talk to everybody we can and find out what everybody else's opinion is and then we throw all those opinions in a basket and we throw God's opinion in there with it and then we just pick one out and we go with it and we wonder why we're not experiencing victory. He says, which is what? The word of God. There is no lie the enemy has that can stand against the word of God. Again, Jesus didn't argue. He didn't debate. He didn't dance around the ring. He just simply said, it is written. So what does that mean to us? Here's three ways the sword inflicts damage upon the kingdom of darkness. Number one is this. The sword of the Spirit is the right word at the right time. The right word at the right time. Now, there are three primary words in the, in the Gospels that are translated word, the spirit, sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Graphe, which means like the 66 books of the Bible. You have the, 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 the Bible. It's, it's the word of God. It's living. It's active. It has the ability to cut you know, between bone and marrow. In other words, God can cut deep in, into us, and there's a reason why he does that, and we'll look at that in a moment. Then there's logos, which is probably the most familiar word, which means the message of God. Or, you know, for example, you, um, you have the Bible and you read it, you study it, hopefully you memorize it, you meditate upon it. And so you're kind of filling your heart, your life with the word of God. So if you want to have a firm grasp on God's word, one of the things we use as a hand illustration, you read it, you study it, um, you meditate on it, you memorize it. You make application of it. If you do these things, then you have a firm grasp on God's word. And so, again, we, you, you, you come and you hear the word of God on Sundays. But again, just hearing it is not enough. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, referring to Jesus. It is the same word. It is the word logos. It is Jesus is God's messenger to us who embody, he's alive, he is active, and he has been given to us to accomplish a certain goal. Right, so that's, that's the logos to you. But the word that Paul uses here is the word rima, R-E-H-M-A, and, and rima, and I think I've put this on your outline, is a very specific message from God. For example, maybe there's been a time in your life you were really, really discouraged, down and depressed, and somebody texted you, said, hey, I was praying this morning, God brought you on my heart, Here's a passage of scripture he gave to me. I just thought I'd share it with you. Love you. Hope to hear back from you soon. You read that passage of scripture, and it's like immediately you just know that is, this is God's message for me at this moment, at this time, right, right word at the right time. And God is so specific. It's like he took that Bible verse and like highlighted it in yellow and says, this is for you. This is my message for you in this moment, in this time. That's when you experience Rima, right? This is what Paul is talking about when he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the rima, the word of God. It is a, the right word at the right time. Or you come in today, and maybe you're discouraged, and you say, well, you know, after, uh, after the message I heard this morning, or maybe in the past, he says, you know what, I was, God just really spoke to me, a direct message to me in that moment in time in my, my life. And it just stops us in our tracks. Now, I will say this, be careful because your enemy, remember whatever God does, he counteracts, he will try to use the rima, a word, a message from God and manipulate you. All right, so here's how this works. Let's say, for example, uh, you get saved and you're the first one saved in your family and you come and you're all excited about Jesus. This is the way it was for me. And 
I'm all excited about Jesus. I'm, there's nobody else in my family, my immediate family, who are Christians. And uh, now my mom didn't do this to me. I'm just using this for an example illustration. But let's say you come home, you're all excited, you're all ramped up, and uh, you know you're new follower of Jesus. And then you know as time goes on, your parents ask you to do something, but you don't want to do it, and you say, well, "I don't want to do that." And and then they say, "Well, you know." I thought you were a Christian, and then they're going to quote you the only Bible verse they, they know. You know, doesn't the Bible say to honor your parents? Is that the, is this the way you honor us? Right? So they're using the word against you because they're trying to manipulate you, and maybe it even gets worse than that. Maybe your dad comes to you and says, you know, you've gotten a job and you're still living at home. You're trying to make ends meet. And you're wanting to move out, but you can't yet. And, and your dad says, well, you know, uh, since you're a believer and you need to honor me as a parent, I need to buy a car. I can't afford it. Can you co-sign for it? All right? So now they're using the word again to get you to co-sign for something. That Listen, if you've got to co-sign for a car for somebody who can't afford a car, after you co-sign for it, they still can't afford the car. And it comes on you, right? So, so this is a manipulation. This is what Satan does with God's word. He tries to manipulate the message. So 2 Timothy 2.15 says that we are to rightly divide the word of God. That means to cut it straight. If somebody's cutting the word of God crooked, that is not from God. That is not a rima. That is not a message of God. So when Satan comes against you in your thought processes, remember what we says. we said is that, listen, you have to capture the thought, take it in obedience to Christ, and think about what is the source of this thought. If the source is cutting the, the word of God crooked, then it's not of God. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, one of the things he says, man, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to, I'm going to take you up. We went up on the, they went on the pinnacle of the temple, and then Satan quoted Jesus Two verses that were half-truth, but he cut it crooked, and Jesus responded with one verse, but it is written. You have to be aware that not everything that enters into your mind that you may think is a message of God is a message of God, or somebody's trying to manipulate it, or Satan's trying to manipulate your thought process. You always have to make sure that the word of God is cut straight, that it is aligning with God's word. How many Christians have I sat in counseling with who told me things, and I said, but that's not what God's Word says. But they say, but, I, I, but you don't understand, Pastor. The reason I have to marry this person, even though there's like 16 red flags that they shouldn't, is because you know the Bible says you better get married. It's better to get married than to burn with lust. Well, that's a manipulation of God's word. I don't think that's God's message to you, all right? I'm just telling you, right? This is what I mean. So God wants us to skillfully use the word, but we make sure we cut the word straight. And um, so the rima is the right word at the right time. It's not manipulative. It brings clarity. It brings confidence. It brings blessing. It, it sometimes is a warning to the person who needs it to be, to be weaponized. It's, it's loving, it's empowering, it is, it is exercising your authority against your enemy. You have to use God's truth against Satan's lies. You have to. That's the only power you have. It's the only authority that you have. And if you skillfully learn how to do that, how to discern what is truth and what is not truth, listen, you've got to take control of your thought life because nobody else can do that for you. If lies are coming into your thought processes, you had better be able to discern what is truth and what is not so that you can skillfully use the word of God against that which is filling your, your mind. Number two, the sword of the spirit is spiritual wisdom for difficult decisions. Spiritual wisdom for difficult decisions. Most decisions are pretty easy to make if you're not emotionally attached to them. Have you ever noticed how you can listen to somebody else and think to yourself, well, I know exactly what you ought to do? That's no, this is a no-brainer. And the reason why it's a no-brainer to you is because you're not in, emotionally involved in that decision they're trying to make. Right? It's amazing to me how many non-parents know how to parent <laughs> because they're not emotionally involved in the parenting, right? But then they have kids 
It's like I was. You know, I can, let me tell you how to parent. I'm the pastor. I can tell you how to parent. Had all kinds of philosophies on parenting. Then I had kids, and I threw out all those philosophies. Now I got none. Uh, I just tell you to hang on for the ride. That's all I can say. Just hang on for the ride. It'll get better in the end. <laughs> when they move out. That's when they get No. So, uh, yeah, so, again, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is this double-edged sword. It's living and active that penetrates him to dividing his soul, spirits, joints, and marrow. It judges our thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is the same word that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, watch this. When you're making emotionally charged decisions, it is an issue of the, of the soul. Remember, you're created in God's image, spirit, soul, and body. The spirit, as a child of God, wants to seek to live itself out through your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, that lives out through your body. But when I'm facing emotionally charged decisions, what gets, what gets clouded? My mind. right? So I need a word, a specific word of God that helps cut through the emotional side of it so that I can hear what God really wants. Because I know what I want emotionally. I want what I want, right? But it may not be what God wants, or maybe it is what God wants, but it not just at that moment in time. Maybe the timing's just off. And so Satan understands this. He knows this. And so he tries, watch this, he tries to keep our lives driven by our emotions, not by the Word of God. Because when you're emotionally involved in the decision and it's, you know, it's hot and heavy, it's just very, very difficult uh, to see it the way that God sees it. And so that's why emotional decisions are so hard to make. For example, uh, you know, last uh, week before last, um, the reason I was gone last Sunday is because my wife and I uh, left on Wednesday to go see our daughter and son-in-law and our grandkids we haven't seen but once in the last eight months. And so I was going to visit my dad, who I haven't seen for over a year, and uh, I got up, you know, Monday morning, had a huge allergy attack, and I was a mess, and, and I felt a little better on Tuesday, and then I got up Wednesday morning, and I said to my wife, I said, I really, she goes, how do you feel? And I said, uh, not good. And what does she say? She says, why don't we just stay home? It would just be better if we just stayed home. I know they'll be disappointed and, and all that. And I'm like, no, no, I'll plow through. I'm going to be in the truck anyways. I'll drive, and when I get there, I can lay in bed at her house. You can play with the grandkids, and, and I, you know, all fine and well. So I did. I, um, because I was emotionally, I really emotionally wanted to see my grandkids. I hadn't seen them for so long, and, and um, besides, they love me. And uh, they're at that age where they think you're, you, know, you hung the moon. Uh, they'll get over that eventually. But uh, So we, we, we get there, and I get up on Thursday morning. I, I, I feel pretty good. I don't feel too bad, and but by Saturday, my daughter has it. And she, but she had already sent a threatening message. If you come here and my kids get this, I will take you out. <laughs> but the kids didn't get sick, but she got sick. So my dad was supposed to come over on Saturday morning. I had to call and say, man, it's probably not good. I don't know what, you know what we have. And so he didn't come. And then, of course, we travel back on Sunday. And... Um, my, my daughter goes to the doctor on Monday morning, and the doctor says, well, you know, we see a lot of COVID cases, dealing with sinuses and all this stuff. You need to get tested. So she gets tested. She calls, sends a text. My wife says, hey, dad needs to get tested. I got tested on Tuesday. I know I didn't have COVID, but she thought I might have COVID. So anyways, bottom line is we both tested negative, uh, so you're not in any danger. But I made an emotionally driven decision that ended up not being a wise decision, right? Why? Because my emotions were involved, and I wasn't thinking clearly, although as God often does, as the Holy Spirit often does, he uses my wife to speak to me, and I just didn't listen to the Spirit of God and got myself in a mess, all right? I'm telling you. When she speaks, I need to listen. I know that. I've learned that. You thought well, you would think, but obviously I have not. But, uh, yeah. So whenever we are making emotionally driven decisions, I'll wrap this up, 
is that, listen, you need to ask yourself a question. Is this decision I'm about to make, is it a violation of God's word? Is it a violation of a principle of God's word? What story do I want to tell on down the road? And is, is there a bump in the road? Is there a check in my spirit? Is, is the spirit of God trying to say, you know, hold up, back up, back off. Uh, you're too emotionally involved. Let me speak the right word at the right time so that you do not make this emotionally driven decision in the wrong way. And so that is the power of the uh, rima of God because this Satan wants you to live by your emotions. He wants you to make emotionally driven decisions. Again, Jesus is tempted by the evil one to take up bread. I mean, he's, the dude is hungry. And, you know, just turn this bread into, you think that's a little bit emotionally charged? I do. Uh, I get pretty hungry. When I get that hungry, I could eat a house. And now all of a sudden, you know, I've got the power to turn this in. So Jesus says, no, 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 no. It is written. It is written. It is written. This is not. No, I'm not letting get my emotions get involved, override. I'm going to make sound judgment on the basis of the written word of God. Jesus doesn't argue with Satan, doesn't engage in the conversation, doesn't give his personal opinion on the matter. Listen, Satan loves it when you say things, well, I think or my opinion is, or my mom said, or my dad said, or my friend said, or my friends I polled on Facebook said. He loves it when you do that because more than likely you're going to go with your emotions rather than the written word of God at that moment in time. Here's the last one. The sword of the Spirit fills me with faith. When I trust God, when I trust God, what fuels my faith? When I trust God and I move in the direction God tells me to go. Obedience is the key. Everything in your life that you feed grows. Everything. What are you feeding in your mind? I know during COVID, people have spent countless hours filling their minds, binge watching on Netflix. But yet, rarely, if ever, pick up the word of God and wonder why they're living defeated lives. For Satan to give you the word, to skillfully use the sword of the Spirit, you got to put something up here. Listen, you ain't got time to go figure out where your Bible is and look up a Bible index. You know where your weaknesses are. You know where you are being defeated over and over again. So you had better... Take that thought captive, write it down, find God's truth that deals with that issue in your life. You commit that to memory. You ingest it deep into your spirit and your soul so that when you are confronted by the evil one, then all of a sudden you have the ammunition, the skill to say, no, 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 Satan, you don't understand. It is written, and because God said it, that's what I'm going to live by. That's what I'm going to live for because Jesus is my Savior, he is my Lord, he is my commander, he is my chief, he is my victory, and I'm walking with him. Then your mind begins to what? Transform. Your thought process, you begin to root out the, the lies, and you begin to build in the truth. It is a lifelong process, but if you're not putting forth the effort then nothing changes because your thoughts have not changed. So here's the last fill in the blank. Remember, it is your enemy's role. He thinks it's his role to create circumstances around you that's going to challenge the faith that is inside of you. Who's going to win? That will determine who's going to win that particular battle on that particular day. But if he keeps winning those daily battles... Those daily battles become habits. Those habits become a lifestyle, and that lifestyle becomes a destiny. If you want to change your destiny, it all begins by changing the way you think. Let's bow our heads together. Now, as you're sitting here this morning, Maybe you're here and this is all new to you and you're thinking, man, this is like a lot to take in. This is a lot to try to digest. And I get that. I understand that. But here's where it all begins. Your next step with God, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've never embraced him personally to be your Savior and the Lord of your life, 
This is where it begins because you are spiritually dead when you came into the world. You're spiritually disconnected from God. It's like a, having a TV that has no power cord. God created you and designed you for a relationship with himself. And so the only thing we have when we're disconnected from God is sheer willpower. How long does that last? You know about a nanosecond. God wants to give you a new power source. He wants to give you a new beginning, a new life, a new start. And it's embracing Jesus and his payment on the cross for your sin debt against the creator who breathed life into you. He created you to have a relationship with himself. He created you to have relationships with other people. We need both. They are both critical to our lives. That's why isolation is so harmful to humanity. We are not created for isolation. We're created for community. But when you experience trauma, then you move into a mode of protection. You try to protect yourself so that that woundedness will never happen again. And sometimes you protect yourself by like, putting God at an arm's length. Listen, you have a Heavenly Father who created you who loves you dearly. He loved you so much that he sent Jesus into the world to die in your place. And by putting your faith and your trust and your hope in him alone for the payment of your sin, God says he will forgive your sin. He will cleanse you from everything you've done wrong. He'll remove the guilt and the shame. He will clothe you in Jesus' righteousness. So when he looks at you, you have a new position in Christ. You are now a new creation in Jesus. And when God looks at you, he sees nothing but Christ. And he will dwell you with his Holy Spirit, a new power source. He gives you a new provision called the armor of God in order for you to, to enable you to resist the evil one who has all of your life has tried to manipulate you and control you through your thoughts. And some of you, when you get up every day and you look in the mirror and you think to yourself, oh, I'm a horrible person. I, I, I'm not smart. I'm not pretty. I, I, and we, look, we list all of our disqualifiers and the worst parts about ourselves that we can think of. And we have those thoughts every single day. God wants to replace those thoughts with truth. God says, no, 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 no. You're a child of the living God. You're a son and daughter in my kingdom. I have indwelt you with my Holy Spirit. I have given you the authority of the kingdom of God itself to overcome the evil one, to root out those lie-based thought processes and translate, transport that with, with good thoughts and truthful thoughts that will transform your life, your mind, that transforms your emotions and your life. It's all found in Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus, I pray this morning that you open your heart to him and invite him in to be your Savior and Lord. If you have questions about that, I'm glad to talk with you immediately following this service. Answer any questions you may have. To the saints of God, please, please, please do not accept the mindset that what you are encountering is unchangeable. That is a lie. You do not have to wait until you're in heaven to have that mindset changed. God has more power than that. And when you learn to use his word like a skillful surgeon with a scalpel in his hand, God can and will transform your life and give you victory over that area that you're struggling with day in and day out. That doesn't mean that the enemy's not going to come against you again with something else. But when, the more skilled you become, the quicker you put that down, the more transformation you experience in your life. God wants you to experience the most you can get out of life with the least amount of wear and tear. And that's why he's given us his